Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity today to worship you. Already our hearts are blessed because we're together in fellowship and in worship. And we know the angels are here and the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we just ask right now that he would enter into our hearts in such a way that we would be like tilled ground, ready to be planted, whatever it is that you would have to plant there, Lord. That it may take root and hold and that it may grow and prosper. And Lord, that as we continue on living until Jesus comes, that you would help us to grow deeper and deeper into our walk with you and that we would be brought from glory to glory, as the Scripture says. So Lord, be with our speaker today, with Pastor Wes. Fill him up to overflowing with that which you have for him. Empty him of self and use him as a vessel in your hands. For we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everyone. How are you today? That's bad. How are you this morning? Are you sure? Can you convince me of that? Happy Sabbath. It's a little better. Almost there. But uh, it's good to see you guys, and I appreciate Pastor Herthel and the welcome and introduction I'm not much for formal introductions. In fact, I'm not much for many formal things at all. This morning, I was preparing to take my shower, and I couldn't find my soap. And I think it was gone. I might have used it all, but I only had a little bit left, and it was gone. So I'm looking around for something to take a shower with, and I couldn't find anything. But I went out into the little living area of my camper, and lo and behold, my eyes fell upon the Dawn dish soap. And so if I smell, if you come up to me and I smell like dish soap this morning, there's good reason for that. Just wanted to let you know. So uh, I'm glad to see you guys. How many of you have had a blessing here at camp meeting so far? And how many of you were here all week? Let me see your hands. How many of you just came for this weekend? All right. And isn't it a blessing to be here? Come on, guys, help me out. Help me out. You've got to give me a little something, okay? All right. It's a blessing to be here, and I'm so glad to be with you. It seems like this camp meeting flew by faster than any other one I've been to. I don't know about you, but it just went by. But I'm, it's my prayer that our next camp meeting will actually be not here, but in heaven. I think if you look around this world and you see what's happening in the world today, it's very evident that we are living in the last days. And you've probably heard that all your life, especially if you've grown up Seventh-day Adventist. But what I find profound is that the very things that Seventh-day Adventists have been preaching would happen for the last 150 years are now happening. If you don't know that or you don't believe that, you go read the book Great Controversy and you go study the book of Daniel Revelation and you'll find that the things we see happening in the world today were, have been preached for 150 years. Our faith is real. Our faith is true. Our message is more relevant today than it's ever been before. And today, if you think, I hope you don't think this, but if you think that the church and the message is not relevant, you only need to open your eyes and look around. The question is not whether this book is relevant whether the message is relevant, whether the church is relevant. The question is, are you relevant to the church? Are you relevant today? That's the question. 
and your relevance to the church, your relevance to the message, to the Bible, to the truth, is all dependent upon your decision. Did you know that? Because God's already made His decision. Let me tell you, down at Lansing, we're baptizing young adults left and right who think that this message has something to offer, not just to themselves, but to others. And the question is whether you believe that or not today. I hope you do. How many of you believe that this morning? Amen. So what has been your young adult camp meeting theme? What is it? Own it. So my question this morning is, do you own it? Have you owned it? In order to own it, you must reach out and what? You must take it. You must grab it and you must, at times, hold on with all your life, right? With your, with your life, as if your life depended upon it. You ever heard the expression, take the bull by the horns? Have you done that with your faith? Have you done that with the truth? Have you done that with God? Have you wrestled with God? I want to talk to you this morning about five principles that deal with owning it. Can we do that? I think that it'll hopefully relate to you. It'll speak to you. I've been praying about the message all week, but we're going to ask the question today, how can we own it? And we're going to look at five principles once again. All right. <clears throat> you know, I've kind of wondered, what is young adult? You're not really young or you're not really adult. When do we go from young to adult, right? I, I don't know. Are we there? Are we at adulthood yet? So can we speak like adults? Can we respond like adults? Amen? Can we do that? You guys awake today? We can do that, right? So I don't know if as the older you get, you just do like, you grow into, you're like a younger adult, and then a young adult, and then a not-so-young younger adult, and then sort of like a young adult, and then not really young adult. Is that how it works? I don't know. Uh, but anyway, we're all adults here. Amen? And so we're going to have a message for adults. But I just want to share with you my testimony a little bit, and then I'm going to go into our point. So let's just have another word of prayer together. If you would, just bow your heads with me, and I'm going to kneel. We'll ask the Lord's blessing one more time. Father, we thank You so much for this opportunity to be here together. We thank You, Father, for the privilege we have to worship You. And we ask, O oh Lord, that You would draw close to our hearts, that You would speak to us as Your children, as Your people, as the ones whom you've loved, whom you have sacrificed all for. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, move upon our hearts to follow you, to live for you, to walk with you. And we ask, Father, that your blessing would be here today, that the Holy Spirit would come and he would convict our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? Most of you. Uh, I did not grow up as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I grew up as going to multiple churches sometimes with my grandparents. And uh, my family didn't really, my parents didn't really go to church. I became a Seventh-day Adventist when I was 22 years old, which was approximately 14 years ago. So I've been in the Adventist church for about 14 years. And let me tell you, the only way to get me out of the Adventist church is in a casket. Some young people today, they're just... They just can't wait until they turn 18 so they can get out of the church. Some young people today, they can't wait till they're 18 so they can kind of live half in the church and halfway out of the church. Some don't want to be in the church at all, but some don't want to be in the church fully. 
So you can only be one of three things today. You can either be in the church, you can be out of the church, or you can be somewhere in between. And every single one of you are in one of those three categories. You're either with Jesus, you're either against Jesus, or you kind of want Jesus, but you also want this over here. The Bible says we can only serve how many masters? One master. I was 22 years old when I accepted Christ. I was 22 years old when I came into the church. I was 22 years old when I was an atheist on the verge of suicide, but God saved my life, and He opened to me the truth of the Bible, and it changed my life forever. Let me tell you, when you study the Bible, it changes you. How many of you believe that? How many of you have found that to be true in your own life? When you, when you study the Bible, it speaks to you in a way that no other book on earth can, because it's not an ordinary book. It is a book of divine inspiration. Do you believe that this morning? It changes you. It changes your character. It changes your heart. It speaks to you. And the reason the Word of God does that is because Jesus is the Word. Amen? And when the Word speaks to us, it's Jesus speaking to us, and He draws near to us in such a powerful way that nothing else will. And you know, friends, when I came into the Adventist church, when I became a Christian, when I became a Seventh-day Adventist, I could not get enough of the truth that God had for me. I could not get enough of the church. I could, got, could not get enough of His people. And I wanted to be wherever His people were. I've never been bored. In fact, all of my boredness was before I became a Christian. I've never been bored since I've become a Christian. If you have been bored since you've become a Christian, since you've given your life to Christ, that's a problem. How many of you believe that? All right, some of you are just already like, who is this guy? What's he, what's he talking about? All right, so I'm going to give you five points, and I'm going to kind of interweave pieces of my testimony into that. Uh, five points to own it. And I'm just going to give you the points up front so that you can just know where we're going, okay? Number one, they're, they're all P's, because my last name is Peppers and I like P's. I have three P's in my last name. Number one, perspective. What is it? Perspective. Number two, participation. What is it? Number three is, you can tell number two was long. Number three, presence. Your presence. What is it, everyone? Number four, persistence or perseverance. What is it? And number five is power. Somebody repeat them back to me. Somebody's out there writing them down. All right, what are they? Number one is perspective. Number two is. Number three is. Number four. And number five, power. Amen? How many of you have heard this statement over and over again, so many young people are leaving the church. You heard that before? And I would propose that, I wouldn't phrase it that way, I would just say people are leaving the church. Because it doesn't matter if they're young or they're old, it doesn't change anything. People are leaving the church. Now, if people are leaving the church, how many of you would think that they're, whoa, look at that. That's amazing. How many of you would think that if people are leaving the church, there must be something wrong with the church? 
How many of you think that would be the case? I mean, there must be some problem with a church that's driving people out of the church, driving people, young people, away from the message, and et cetera, et cetera. How many of you think that would be the case? i got no takers. i got a couple takers here, okay? So let's take a look at a Bible verse. You ready? Go with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at verse 66. So you have John 6, 6, 6. That's serious business, right? John 6, 6, 6. I actually had turned right to it. That's kind of a double sign. That's kind of scary, right? John 6, 6, 6. Let me just read verse 65 as well. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Okay? Got that? It's what Jesus said. And right after that, you have John 6, 6, 6. And it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him. How much? No more. So Jesus made this point that no man can come to me except by my Father. And in Jewish thinking, that was big problems, wasn't it? Isn't that true? And then the Bible says that many of his disciples turned and walked away from him no more. So is that like 20%? Yes or no? Is that like half? Is it like more than half? Or is it more like most? Most. So if we follow the logic today that young people leave the church because the church is problematic, it has so many issues, it has so many difficulties, then we must also use the same logic with Jesus because not just a few, not just half, but how many? Most of the disciples turn and walk with Him no more. So Jesus must also be problematic. What do you think? Is that a wise logic to use, yes or no? Now let me ask you a question. Does the church have some issues? Yeah. But did the 12 disciples have some issues? Yeah. Did the early church have some issues? Yeah. Did the church in its purest form throughout history have some problems, yes or no? So the problems are not problems, are not the problems. Let me just say that again. The problems in the church are not the problems. That's not what makes people leave. Are you with me? What is the problem? Look in verse 64. But there are some of you who do not what? Who do not believe. The issue was not the problem. It was their faith. That was the problem. Are you with me? The problem was that human nature does not like to surrender itself to a higher power. Are you with me, yes or no? What do you think about that for just a minute? One of the, our biggest arguments I hear about is hypocrisy in the church. How many, of you, how many of you would make that case? Man, these older generation people, they're so hypocritical. They say one thing and do another, and it's just so frustrating. And they think they know everything, and they're so judgmental, and they're so religious. Right? Well, if you have that attitude, and you say, I'm just going to leave the church over that. You have that attitude, 
then you would have never made it with the 12 disciples. They were about the worst hypocrites that have ever walked the earth. One of them betrayed Jesus. They all had all kinds of issues. They were all full of themselves. They didn't really have belief in Him. They had all kinds of issues, didn't they? Let me just say this. Hypocrisy in the church should not drive you further away from Jesus and the church, but it should actually drive you closer to Jesus and closer to the church. Do you know why? Because Jesus told us over and over in Scripture, all through the Bible, that especially in the last days, there would be great what? Hypocrisy. There would be sheep, or I'm sorry, wolves in sheep's what? Clothing. There would be Laodiceanism and lukewarmness. How many of you ever read Revelation chapter 3? The seven churches, right? The seven churches in the book of Revelation. And which church is the last church? The church of what? Laodicea. And what is the condition of that church? It is lukewarm. What do you think? Yes or no? And so Jesus actually told us beforehand that there would be hypocrisy in the church, that there would be lukewarmness in the church, that there would be indifference in the church. So why then, when Jesus told us beforehand that this would be the case, we allow it to discourage us into thinking, I'm going to leave the church. You know, it's kind of like the disciples before the cross. Jesus told them all this stuff, and what happened when the, when the moment of faith came? What did they do? They forgot it, didn't they? They didn't remember it, and they got discouraged, and they fell asleep, and etc., etc., etc. Let me just say this. Let me say this. If you know the truth, how many of you believe that you know the truth? The truth as it is in Jesus. Now, we all have room to grow, don't we? But if we know the truth, and we leave the church because of others who are hypocrites, then who actually becomes the bigger hypocrite? The one that leaves. You know why that's the case? Because we want to be quick. We say those people, those, those religious, if you will, right people, they're so judgmental, they're so this, they're so that, when in fact, those are the, actually the people that we should be having compassion on. It seems like today we want to have compassion on the people who are going to appreciate us. We want to be kind to the people who are going to be kind to us. If there's judgmental religious people in your church who are condemning and etc., step up to the plate and treat them like Christ would. Don't leave it because it's God's church. Let me just say this. If you leave the church over hypocrisy, then you're saying that you don't really believe Jesus has the power to change them or you. You ever thought about that? I'm not saying all of you are planning to leave the church. But as young people, I hear these arguments all the time. How many of you do as well? Right? Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Check out this... Uh, passage right here. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
and you've probably heard this growing up all through your life. They quoted it to you in Pathfinders, but I want to point something out here. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Let no one do what? Despise your youth. And everyone focuses on that. Let no one despise your youth. Just because you're young doesn't mean you're not valuable, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we always want to use this verse to kind of like build up our self-esteem. Everyone wants their self-esteem built up, but one of the ways to build up your self-esteem, quote-unquote, is to actually take responsibility and accountability for who you are. And you have an identity, and you decide within your life, within your heart, you're going to live up to that identity. And the only way in the Christian walk, as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian living in the last days, the only way to truly live up to that identity is to make a complete an absolute surrender to Christ. You won't find power to do it. You won't find the self-will to do it anywhere else. You can put on a pretty good show for a while in your own strength, but after a while, that stuff breaks down, and it breaks down quick, and when you fall, you fall hard. How do I know that? Because I've experienced it. But look what he says. Let no one despise your youth, but be what, friends? Be an example to the believers. It doesn't just say to be an example to the unbelievers, does it? Does the Bible say that? Does the Bible say be an example to the Gentiles and to the unbelievers, yes or no? Yeah, it does. But Paul here is admonishing Timothy in the midst of a church that has strife, in the midst of the church that has people who are hypocrites, he says, be an example to who? To the believers. In word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our church had a little bit more of that stuff going on? Amen? And it can only come from God, but it can only come from God and He only displays it through your life when you make an absolute surrender to Him. Some say the problem... you ever heard people say, well, the problem is just with people. Wherever you find people, you're going to find problems. You hear people say that all the time, right? Problems with people in the church. Actually, that's not true. The problem is not with people. The problem is with sin. And the problem takes place when sin is in the people. Does that make sense? And so if we, could, if we could get rid of the sin, if we had to get rid of all, if people say, well, all the problems would be resolved if we could just get rid of the people. Well, if we got rid of the people, we'd have to get rid of you. And we'd have to get rid of me. Right? But God doesn't say the problems with the people, the problem is with sin in the people. Amen? And the problem can't be with people because God created people. Amen? Somebody ought to have said Amen? Let me say this. God is looking for young people. Old and young. We're all young in God's eyes. But He's looking for people who see the bigger picture of everything. God is looking for young people who see that He's going to fix the church. He's going to fix the people. He's going to fix the problems. And He's going to solve every problem that's driving people out of the church. 
And the only reason that people will ultimately leave the church will be because of their unbelief. Unbelief. That's what it's going to boil down to in the end. How many think we ought to stay in the church? Amen? How many think we ought to stay in God's house? Amen. You know, you can keep yourself busy your whole life in this day and age with things that don't matter one bit. You know that? You see, here's something that's very important. People in the old days, so to speak, people in the previous generations, they basically worked and they went to church. They didn't have all kinds of stuff to distract them. Are you with me? Some might say, oh, they had it easier than us. But in this day and age, that stuff is not your excuse for not living godly lives. You understand that? You are not a victim of those things. You are a chooser of those things if you find yourselves engaged with them. So in these last days, when young people are bombarded with all this stuff, you have a more difficult choice to make in the last days than even the generations before you. You get what I'm saying here? Because, because you have so many more things pulling your attention. But listen, how much more powerful would the glory of God be when you choose what's right and you choose to surrender yourself wholly to Christ and His glory is shining through your life into the lives of others around you? How much more sweet is that surrender going to be knowing that you are giving up those things which the world is pulling you to. Make no mistake, friends. Sin is fun. Sin is joyful. Sin is pleasurable. Sin is exciting. All those wrong choices, they're exciting in the moment. But how many of you have ever found that the concluding moments of sin are always just fun and joyful? How many of you have always found that the consequences are usually more bitter than the joy of the pleasure? How many of you have found that to be true? Found that to be true? So then why do we keep choosing it? I don't know. Only you can answer that question. But if you choose Christ, how many think that's a better choice? Let me make, let me say, make this statement here from Acts of the Apostles, page 71. It says, Money, time, influence. All the gifts that they have received from God's hand, they will value only they will be of value only as a means of advancing the work of the Gospel. You know, you can, you can make yourself rich, but after you buy your food, your clothing, your housing, and your vehicle, money cannot buy more happiness. Even secular people know that. They've published articles on it all the time. So money, once you provide for your basic needs, really becomes no, of no value to you unless you're giving it away. So maybe we should call for another offering. I preached several couple years ago out to the, uh, the group of Advent Hope Believers in, at Loma Linda, and many of them are doctors and dentists, or they're becoming those things, nurses. And I said, man, God has not called you into this medical field so that you can buy big cars and buy big houses and buy all these stuff. You're going to make a lot of money as a medical professional. But God has called you to use that for the advancement of His Gospel. And let me tell you, friends, the doctors that I know in the church 
who use their money to fund the work, and I don't say pick on doctors, but anybody wealthy, to fund the work of God, to use it to claim lost souls, are much happier and more content than those who are buying all kinds of stuff for themselves. They are much happier. And it same goes, it doesn't matter if you're rich, because we live in a very self-centered society, yes or no? Everything, everything must center around me, what I like, what I don't like, what I think, how I feel. And that is all contrary to God's thoughts. In Isaiah 55, our scripture reading, he said, my thoughts are higher than what? Than your thoughts. If we could just get past our own thoughts and probe into God's thoughts just a little bit, it could radically change our lives. Radically change our lives. Radically change our lives. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. So what was number 2? It's what? Your what, friends? It's your participation. Your participation. Some people will say, I'll only do something in the church if I get asked. I mean, you've ever had that point. Only if someone asks me, will I do something in the church? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, what did Jesus do? What's Matthew 28, 18 to 20? It's the Great Commission, and what does He say? Go ye therefore, right? So when somebody, I've heard people say, man, they don't ask me to do anything, so I'm not going to do anything. Well, Jesus already asked you a long time ago, didn't He? He already asked you. He already asked me, and He's already invited us to come and be a part of His work. You know, you've heard the famous saying from JFK, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Does it not work the same thing with the church? Ask not what the church can do for you, but what you can do for what? The church. You know why? Because it's not our church. It's whose church? It's His church. And if we value Him, we will value His church. And if we value His church, we will be a part of His church. Not a dead part, but a living part. Not a blackened part, but a part that is shining brightly. Not a rusted part, but a moving part. Amen? How many think that's important, yes or no? How many of you are involved, you don't have to raise your hands, but I want you to think about this. How many of you are involved in your local church? You don't have to raise your hands. I just want you to think. How many of you are involved in your local church? And I don't mean you take up the offering once a quarter. I mean you hold a position or you're actively engaged in a ministry you are moving, you're being a part, you go to your church business meetings, you go to your church board meetings. Did you know that you don't have to be a board member to go to the church board meetings? Did you know that? The church board meetings are open to anyone who wants to come. How many of you are actively involved in your church? How many of you are moving, doing outreach ministry, doing inreach ministry? How many of you are doing something for the kingdom of God and your local church? We ought to value the church um, you know, 
The thought that it's God's church ought to make us want to serve it more. What do you think? Do you think that's true? And here's why. Because if it was our own church, the value would diminish how much? Greatly. But it's not our church. It's His church. And if Jesus values you, He values His church, we ought to want to be the part of His church. You realize that you don't have to have a pastor to do ministry? How many of you knew that? You don't have to have a church position to do ministry. How many of you knew that? You don't have to be a Sabbath school teacher. You don't have to be a departmental director. All you have to do is go do what God asks you to do. The most valuable ministry that you can do is to share your faith with others. Amen? That's the most valuable ministry that you can do. And you don't need anybody to tell you what to do to do that. What do you say? Some people say, well, I don't know what to do. Well, you shouldn't know what to do because it's not you doing it anyway. The right question is, what does God want me to do? And if you don't know what He wants you to do, then get down on your knees and don't get up until you know. And if you wrestle with Him, I promise you, as a young person who's had that experience, you will know. Because God's eyes are looking to and fro upon the earth and He's looking for anybody who will respond to His invitation. And if He sees you on your knees with all your heart, with sincerity of heart, asking Him, God, show me what to do, I promise you He will show you what to do because God cannot lie and He cannot resist Himself when there's a heart open to His influence. How many of you can say amen this morning? So do, you don't know what to do? That's okay. You don't have to know what to do. You just need to know where to go when you don't know. Still awake? Are you alive? Go with me to Nehemiah chapter 3 now. Nehemiah chapter 3. I was reading this verse the other day, and it just, and it just like blew me away. Nehemiah chapter 3. In Nehemiah chapter 3, it's talking about all the people. You remember, what's the story of Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah's off in this other country, and the city of Jerusalem is laying in what? Ruins, right? And God raises Nehemiah to go up and do what? To rebuild the wall. You think there's some kind of parallel between this story and Seventh-day Adventists living at the end of time? What do you think? You think there's some kind of parallel we can make there? Is God calling us to re be restorers of the breach? Yes or no? What do you think? Yes. So here in Nehemiah chapter 3, it actually lists all the people that are working on the wall. Okay? Imagine if we had a list of people in the church who were working in the church. Think about that. If that, was the if that was the case, what would be your legacy? So, right in the midst of this chapter, as you find people who are working on building the wall, you find this verse. It says, verse 4, Next to them were the Merimoth, the son of Uri, the son of Akaz, who made repairs. Next to them... Meshulam, the son of Barak, the son of 
Meshezabel made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, made repairs. So th these are the kind of chapters in the Bible that you just kind of like skip over, right? You're like, like the begats. But then look at this. Look at this. Verse 5. Next to them, the... I don't even know how to say it. Tekoites made repairs, but watch this. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. You getting it? You're not getting it. That's okay, I didn't expect you to. But imagine your family being listed in the Bible amidst like 20 other families who were doing the work. This family did their work faithfully. Did their work faithfully. This family did their work faithfully. This family did their work faithfully. These made repairs. These made repairs. And then there's your family's name. And it says, they did not put their shoulder to the work of the Lord. Like, that wouldn't be good, would it? I mean, you can imagine that. It wouldn't be too good, would it? They did not put their shoulder into the work. They didn't give it their all. They did not God, allow God to use them in the way that He wanted to. They did not uh, do their work faithfully, but they kind of skimped around. They kind of did this or that. Maybe they were the pursuing their own course. Let me say this, young people. In the last days of earth's history, let it not be said about you that did not put their shoulder to the work of the Lord. Is that going to be your legacy as the people of God, as this generation of young people? They did not put their shoulder to the work. And the list of faithful pioneers, reformers, missionaries, martyrs, could it be said about, could there be at the bottom of the list millennials, did not put their shoulders to the work. But instead they whined, they complained, they left the church, they pointed out all the hypocrites except one, which was themselves. How many of you think participation in the Lord's work is important? What about your presence in the church? What do you think? Go with me to Hebrews chapter 4. 10. You know this verse. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. We'll read verse 24 as well. Actually, we'll read verse 23. We've got just a few minutes left here. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23. He says, Let us do what? Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is what? Faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the what? The assembling of ourselves together as much as is the matter of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the what? The day approaching. What does the Bible say about church attendance, young people? What do you think? What is, it, is it important, yes or no? Is it more important today than it ever has been in the history of the church? How do we know that? Because he says, as so much more as you see the what? The day approaching. Do you go to church? 
You're in church, right? Do you go to church on time? Do you go to Sabbath school? Do you go to Sabbath school on time? Do you go to early morning Sabbath prayer? What is that? We have that at our church? Probably. Do you go to prayer meeting through the week? Some people say, well, you know, I don't get anything out of prayer meeting. I don't get anything. People, my church members used to tell me, they used to say, I don't get anything out of prayer meeting, Pastor, unless you're there doing it. I say, that's the reason why I don't always lead it, because I don't want you dependent upon me. So I say, well, let me ask you a question tonight. What do you do in place of prayer meeting? So what you're telling me, if you don't get anything out of prayer meeting, that's why you don't go. You must be going home then and doing something else that's like vibrantly more spiritual and something that's just life transforming because you're not getting anything at prayer meeting, so therefore you go home and do something alternative. If that's the case, tell me what it is, and we need to have prayer meeting at your house. And they're like, I said, are you watching the game on Wednesday night? Like conviction, right? I said, so don't tell me you don't get anything out of prayer meeting, and then you go do something that's like, let's just say if you come to prayer meeting, and you, you like come into prayer meeting, at this certain spiritual level, and then you leave prayer meeting at this same spiritual level, you got nothing out of prayer meeting, right? At least you're still at par. At least you're still the same level, right? But if you go, you're not doing something else that's more spiritual, what happens to your spirituality? It's going down. Go to church. Why don't get anything out of it? It's not about you. If you can't get anything out of it, then at least go to give something to it. Go to be a blessing, not just to get a blessing. And I promise you this, every single time you will go anywhere to anybody, to any church service, to be a blessing, you will get a blessing. You will get a blessing. We need the church. What do you think? How many believe that to be true? You cannot own your faith if you don't attend it. Let me tell you a story. When I joined the church, 22 years old, I was at State University. I had my first experience as an Adventist education was in my master's degree. K through 12, bachelor's degree, all in secular public schools. Never knew what an Adventist was. Never heard of an Adventist. If you'd have showed me veggie meat when I was like 20 years old, you wouldn't like the response. I'd be like, what in the world is this stuff, right? So I'm 22 years old in the, Advent, or in the state university. I'm about to commit suicide. God changes my heart. He converts me. He brings me to a knowledge and an acceptance of himself. I'll never forget the moment I accepted Christ. Never forget that moment. Every burden of my sin was lifted up. And I found peace like I'd never found my whole life. And so, I was going to an Adventist church near my house, but I was attending university. So when I was at university, I'd go to this other church. And when I went to the church, I was 22, and the next person close to my age was 55. 55. And then after that, there was like two people in their 60s. And then after that, it was, there was like 10 or 15 in their 70s. 
and then another 10 or 15 in their 80s and 90s. And I'm sitting there, and there's like all these walkers in the aisle, crutches, wheelchairs. You know, the potlucks are like this crusty old special Kalo. And I'm just sitting, and the songs are like, dun, 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 dun. And even the pastor was really old. He got up, and he was like, half a, he was taking naps during his own sermon. And I was sitting there, and I was 22, man. I had just came out of the world. I, was, I had been listening to Aerosmith, and now I was like singing Amazing Grace. Some of you are like, who's Aerosmith? <laughs> I was listening to all this crazy music, stayed up three days and two nights playing video games. One time, I saw a dude that died doing that, was watching all these movies. I was into all kinds of drugs and alcohol. And here I am, after I've accepted Christ, sitting in a church, and the dude that's next, the closest to my age is like 30 years older than me, up to like 50. I mean, these people had been, had been alive like more than three times the amount of years I had been alive. And I'm just sitting there, and do you think I'm sitting there thinking, man, I wish there were people around my age here. No! I was saying, Jesus is here, and that's all that matters to me. I was rejoicing. I was weeping. I was sitting in the pew crying, singing to those dry hymns. Now, I love hymns, but it depends on how they're played, amen? It's kind of like vegetarian food. Vegetarian food is some of the best food I've ever eaten, and also some of the worst food I've ever eaten. It depends on who's cooking it, Amen? Hymns can be some of the worst music you ever sing or some of the best, depending upon who's singing and who's playing. Amen? But the biggest thing that it's dependent upon is what's in your heart. If your heart has been converted to Christ, your worship experience is not dependent upon what's on the platform. It's dependent upon what you've experienced all week with Christ in your personal time. Are you with me, yes or no? God is looking for your presence in church. It cannot change unless you're there. And your experience cannot grow unless you are there. Amen? we got to wrap up. Number four, your persistence. Go with me quickly to Acts chapter 16. I want to read this to you. Acts chapter 15. Did I say 15? I meant 16. Acts chapter 16. You guys doing okay? We got started late or else I would have ended on time. You believe that? It's true. Alright, Acts chapter 16. Verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Sounds like a modern TV show. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she did this for how long? Many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you to, in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. I want you to think about this. This girl who is possessed of Satan, 
followed Paul around annoyingly for many days. And she was what? Persistent, persistent, persistent. And if you read the book, actually, the Apostles, you find that Satan was trying to distract the people away from the message that Paul was carrying. And he would do anything. In, the, in fact, we're, we won't look there for sake of time, but in Acts chapter 23, it talks about three times in the chapter that there were people, men, who refused to eat or drink or sleep until they had killed Paul, the apostles. They wanted to kill him. I want you to think about this. If Satan is that determined, if he is that persistent, if he is that, if he was persevering that much and that greatly to destroy the work of God, that he causes people to fast, to destroy the work of God, how much more ought God's people to be persistent and to be persevering to see the work of God thrive and move forward. When was the last time you gave a personal sacrifice for the Lord? Through your time, your talent, your resources, I don't know what. When was the last time you fasted and said, God, not that there's any merit in fasting, but God, I want, I want you to know that I'm serious about this. I want you to know that I'm serious about my friend who needs to know Christ. I want you to be you know that I'm serious about finding a life partner. I'm not just going to sleep with the first person that comes along. I want you to know that, I, that I'm serious about my future and I want your plan to unfold before me. I want you to guide my life. I want you to be the priority of my life. And God, I'm here now fasting. I'm praying. I'm not going to eat or drink. I'm that serious about following you. There's no merit in it. You don't do it so God will you'll get His attention, but you do it so that it's a sign of submission and surrender to His will. If those people were willing to submit to destroy the work of God to their Master, how much more ought we be willing to submit so that God's work can go forward and it can go forward in our lives? What do you think? It's kind of quiet. In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them it has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the Word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance, they are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Is that the story of your life today? Or is your story like those in Nehemiah? They did not put their shoulder to the work. The last P, and then we'll close, is what, friends? It's power. The truth is, you can't do any of these things. You can't have the right perspective. You can't have participation. You can't have perseverance. You can't have a presence unless you have His presence. 
and His power in your life. And in Acts chapter 1, you can just write it down. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus was speaking to His apostles and He says, you're going to go and you're going to wait. And He says, and you will receive what? Power. And you're going to seek Me for ten days and you're going to receive power to change the world. Have you had the patience with God to receive the power of God? Have you spent time with Him? Because that's only where you're going to receive that power. God gives power for three things. For our salvation, to overcome sin in our lives, and to lead others to salvation. That's what He gives power for. But you have to believe that He will give you that power. And you have to seek Him for it. It's not because he, he, he's, he's, he, he's withholding it from you because He doesn't love you. It's none of that kind of stuff. It's that He wants to know. He already knows, but He wants you to know that you're serious about it. That's why He asks you to pursue Him. He's right there, and He's ready and waiting. Amen? I remember when I, when I first became a Christian, became a Seventh-day Adventist, I spent, I was a college student, I had no job, I just went to classes about four hours a day, and I spent seven to ten hours a day in Bible study and prayer. And I'm not telling you that to credit myself in any way. What I am saying is that the more time I have spent with God, the more vividly real He becomes to me. The more real He becomes to me. And there were times when I would be wrestling with God for hours at a time, and I could sense His very presence in the room. There were times He answered prayers that were literal miracles. Miracles. My whole life is a miracle. It's all due to His credit. But you're not going to have power. You're not going to have an interest in any of the spiritual things that He has to offer you unless you spend time with Him. You must become a sermon. You must become more than what you are. The world judges Christianity not by what it says, what the Bible says, but how the people live their lives. I'm going to read you this one statement from this book, and then we're going to close. I want to make my appeal. He says, this is from Ian Bounds. The constraining power of love must be in the Christian as a projecting, eccentric, and all-commanding and self-oblivious force. The energy of self-denial must be his being, his heart and blood and bones. He must go forth as a man or woman among men or women, clothed with humanity, humility, abiding in meekness, wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, the bonds of a servant with the spirit of a king, a king in high, royal, dependent bearing with the simplicity and sweetness of a child. You must throw themselves with all the abandonment of a perfect self-emptying faith and a consuming zeal into your work for the salvation of others. Hardy, heroic, compassionate, fearless martyrs must be those who would take hold of and shape a generation for God. If we are timid time-servers, place-seekers, 
people-pleasers, or men-fearers, if our faith has a weak hold on God or His Word, if our denial be broken by any phase of self or the world, we cannot take hold of the church nor the world for God. So this morning, do you own it? Do you own it? Do you own it? How many of you want to own it? You cannot own it if the enemy of God owns you. So this morning, who owns you? Who owns you? When I accepted Christ, let me tell you, the enemy owned me. I can't even tell you all the ways he owned me. But when I gave myself to Jesus, I remember in tears I said, I am yours. Take me. I am yours. Take me. And there have been many moments since that day Satan owned me again. And maybe for you today, he's owning you in this moment. Maybe he didn't own you yesterday or last week, but today he owns you. But Jesus says there's only one who can really own you. That's the one who has created you. The one who sustains you. The one who redeems you. We're going to sing our closing song now. And I'm going to make an appeal. It's time for us to graduate as young adults. The Apostle Peter says something. Oh, you can come and just give you ready. The Apostle Peter says that we've been taking in the milk and we should have been taking in the meat of the Word. Are you with me? And I don't know about you, maybe you're feasting on the meat and that's great. Maybe you own your faith and you're helping others own it. I don't know. But I would guess that there's some here today who say, the Lord does not own me today. He doesn't own me. But I want Him to own me. And I want to own my faith. I want to know Him. Maybe today you're wrestling. All these things I've talked about, you've just thrown them out the window. But today you sense the Spirit of God saying, own it. And the only way to own it is if He owns you. If He owns you. We're going to sing our closing song, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. We can all stand together. And today, I'm making this appeal. If you want the Lord Jesus to own you, and He doesn't own you today, would you just come forward as we sing? Don't be afraid. Just come. It's not to put a show on for anybody but it's to indicate to the Lord Jesus, I want you to own me.
as we sing, would you come if that's your heart's desire? Before you sing, I see a brother come forward. There may be others this morning that say, Lord, I want you to own me. Maybe Satan doesn't own you today, but you want a deeper commitment in your faith. You want the Lord Jesus to say, take it and own it. And you want him to have you 100% in all that you do. If you want to recommit your life as we sing the second verse, would you just come forward? We'll have special prayer. Father, this morning we thank you for those that have come. We're thankful, Lord, that you give us the privilege of owning it. It is a great privilege, Lord. And the only way for us to truly own it is for you to fully and truly own us. And we give ourselves to you, O Lord. We ask for your blessing. We ask you to make it real for us, that it would be wholly thine, that we would receive that power from on high, which you have promised us, that the Holy Spirit would move us and draw us sweetly to you. We thank you, Father, and we come in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.